This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Obama is this complicated figure because he had, like, legal academic background. I think he was more of an intellectual than you usually see among politicians. That was Well, well we fixed that. <laughs> Absolutely, right. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I have been thinking a lot lately about polarization. Uh, you all know that if you listen to the podcast, I am obsessed with polarization. But the reason I find it so interesting is that it's changed. It's different. We are a polarized country in a way that we weren't 40, 50, 60 years ago. And I think this is something that distorts our understanding of politics. We've been Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives for so long. The labels have remained unchanged for so long that it's very easy to extrapolate backwards to think that it's always been this way, that, that, that what we are seeing is just how politics is. People have always argued, but it isn't. They have not been. We have not been. Something has changed. And so I want to do a show about what has changed and more than that, not what has changed, what it felt like before it changed. If it's true, this thing I keep telling you, that American politics was not ideologically and politically polarized 50 years ago in the way it is today, well, then what the hell was politics back then? What, what, what was even happening? <laughs> what were people arguing about? And it's why I invited Sam Rosenfeld on the show today. Sam is a professor of political science at Colgate University. He's a, a former journalist. We actually worked together in my first job in journalism back at the American Prospect. He's a brilliant guy. And he's also the author of The Polarizers, Postwar Architects of Our Partisan Era. And this is a book that more so than any I've read on the subject, and I've read a lot on the subject, takes you inside the debate about polarization at the moment that the American political system was deciding whether to polarize. It lets you hear politicians talking about do they want the Democratic Party to be a party of liberals and the Republican Party to be a party of conservatives? And if not, why not? Why wouldn't you have a party that was actually a representative of a single ideological idea? Why shouldn't American politics be divided by principles? Why shouldn't our coalitions mean something? I think what's so fascinating about really putting yourself in this moment in history is really asking, if you had been there, would you have been someone saying, yes, it is time to polarize American politics. The way we are doing things doesn't make sense. Let's get into this polarization thing that led us here. So this is a very fun interview. Uh, it is very, very useful for thinking about how American politics was and could be different. So as you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here is Sam Rosenfeld. 
Sam Rosenfeld, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. How, how long have we known each other? Um, well, we are old now. We are um, old. So I started at the American Prospect in 2004, the summer of 2004. And I began in 2005. You came on a year later? Yeah. Yes. So and look, the second term of, of, of GWB. It's weird, right? There's a weirdness to trying to think back to what politics was like then and connecting it to right now. I think often about how that period had a very similar level of emotional alarm for a lot of people. I mean, that was mm-hmm. second term George W. Bush. That was after he had won re-election despite it right. being clear that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and the war was going badly and it was based on lies. And yet the country re-elected him. And I often think of that period as being more than any other the right analog for for right now, that sense of rejection liberals have, that sense that, that the country's done something they they, they can't quite understand. Um, I, I'm curious how much you think there's there are similarities there. Oh, I, I definitely do. I, I I will never forget the New Republic wrote an editorial. You know, they endorsed Lieberman in the primaries and all this stuff. Joe Mentor and so were, Yeah, of course. And so that you know, they were the old version of the New Republic that was a, a kind of punching bag for people to their left. But they wrote a editorial after Bush got reelected that the opening line was one paragraph, single line paragraph. This one hurts. <laughs> that, <laughs> and, and the rest of the editorial sort of channeled that feeling, which I can tell you being at the American Prospect on election night, it was a formative trauma that I can't say prepared me for 2016 anymore than prepared anyone else. But it was the sense of Oh, we just went through four years of extremely acrimonious, polarizing, partisan battling. We've had this war that's not seemingly not going well. And yet here we are with all the chips on the table and a kind of much more clarity about what the stakes were uh, in 2004 compared to 2000. And lo and behold, you know, half the country, it turned out. Wanted to keep going. So I bring this up for a reason. I, I think that everybody in politics, I should say pundits particularly, have a tendency to be very rooted in the moment, the sort of first, second decade that they were in politics, right? That's when people do a lot mm-hmm. of their learning. It's when they form their ideas of what politics is and what it's about. And you and I have only covered politics or you're a historian now and, and, and written about it in a time when it was highly polarized, in a time when the divisions between the parties, both in terms of their ideology and the demographic composition of the parties, was tremendous, uh, in a time when you know everybody is lamenting how polarized politics was. Mm-hmm. And you've just written this book that does more than any book I've read, and I've read a lot of them on this subject, to kind of bring people back to how American politics sounded and what it looked like and what the arguments and dynamics were in the period when it wasn't polarized, even though we still had Republican and Democratic parties. And I, I thought I'd like to start here if we could. You, you tell a story about Republican National Committee leaders in 1959, and they have this Committee on Program and Progress. And they actually invite a, a political scientist, Robert Goldwyn, to lead a discussion with them about whether or not there should be principles and objectives guiding the Republican Party at all. And he actually comes in and he says that he wants to make a case that, quote, it is neither possible nor desirable for a major political party to be guided by principles. I'd like you to just talk to me, to us a little bit about what 
politics looks like in an age when that is a thing people say. Absolutely. Well, so, so to set the context a little bit more for that weird and very unproductive meeting between a political scientist and some party folks, the Republican Party, you know, they were in the White House. This was uh, the second term of Dwight Eisenhower. But the second term of Dwight Eisenhower was beset by a kind of growing ideological fight, factional fight within the Republican Party and, and in this new kind of gestating conservative movement in which there was a lot of consternation and frustration with Eisenhower's moderate policies. The Democratic Party happened to have a national committee leader who was unusually active and high profile and disconnected from or not attached to any particular political patron or presidential candidate, Paul Butler, who had managed to instigate this policy council called the Democratic Advisory Council that put forth over the objections of not only kind of really conservative Southern Democrats, but congressional leaders like Lyndon Johnson would put forth statements about issues as they came up. And they were kind of forthright, aggressive, proto-great society, northern liberal positions on civil rights, on labor, on welfare state, economic regulation. And after the 1958 midterm elections, which was a huge kind of wave election for for Democrats and uh, Republicans took a huge hit, Republican party leaders thought, okay, we need to get together and try and both heal some of these internal wounds, these internal divisions that are roiling in our own party, and mimic the success or at least the kind of notoriety of the Democratic Advisory Council by putting together our own committee that would figure out what the principles are that the Republican Party stands for and and put out positions. And so that was what this committee was. And it was run by Eisenhower-affiliated party leaders, so it was pretty milquetoasty and moderate in its inclinations already. And one of the kind of exercises they had the members of the committee do is talk to a political scientist who thought it would be useful to kind of lay out a mainstream position among plenty of political scientists and scholars of this era to make the case against parties standing for principles. He drew on a a strain of political science scholarship that sort of venerated and celebrated an exceptional party history in the United States compared to the experience of of Europe. We had parties that emerged and uh, mass democracy that came about much earlier than in Europe prior to industrialization. And the idea was the United States had always had these exceptionally pragmatic, non-ideological, big tent parties that organized and mobilized people not on the basis of kind of high principle or intense social and class stratifications, but mobilize them through other means. And they were basically instruments of inclusion and temperance and forbearance rather than mobilizers of specific and distinct programs. And he made the case that those kinds of parties fit American political institutions, the constitutional structure, better than what was perceived as European-style ideological parties. So I want to come back to this idea of fitting the constitutional structure. But but, but first, I want to note something that, that I took away from the book, which is that – so it's not just this political scientist, but you have in the book Richard Nixon, John F. Kennedy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I mean politician after politician after politician after politician forthrightly arguing with the idea 
that we should have ideological parties. You have Richard Nixon saying it would be a great tragedy if we had our two major political parties divide on what we would call a conservative liberal line. Right. You have RFK saying that um, to a journalist that given how many other divisions we have in the country, for the parties to to add a liberal ideological collision into that would be would be too explosive. Mm-hmm. What was the argument for that? What was the argument the politicians were making at that time? And and were they really making it or was this just a form of rhetoric that was hiding their real ideologies? I think they meant it. I think they um, in part were imbibing intellectual current. So Robert Kennedy is the one who got high dudgeon talking to journalist Godfrey Hodgson and and went on this spiel about how dangerous it would be to have ideological divisions define the parties. But John F. Kennedy was in the book he wrote that won him a Pulitzer Prize uh, when he was a senator. He was really influenced by, um, what is his name? I'm blanking on his name, but a political scientist who wrote a book called The Price of Union, which was mainly about the Civil War, but in part was all about an argument that a country as diverse and um, pluralistic as the United States has always been depended on parties as the large collective organizers of conflict in American politics, um, depended on them to contain within them, each of them, all of the different important social cleavages in society. Rather than align themselves along those social cleavages, instead you make sure that these parties are cross-cut by all those cleavages, mobilizing people basically based on pragmatic or transactional inducements like patronage or what you might call affective kind of emotional attachments to one party or the other, but that the actual policy that gets made is going to be incremental and oriented towards compromise, and that the alternative is the alternative that we saw in the 1850s that culminated in a constitutional crisis and a catastrophic civil war. So is that the historical context? Is part of the belief that we should have these non-ideological parties a hangover seems like too gentle a word, but a remnant of the civil war where people saw a division between the parties turn into the single deadliest conflict in American history. And so the view that then rippled through American life for another century is that, well, we don't want to do that again. Like parties are not a way to organize conflict. Like if that happens, then you might get to armed conflict. I would say to get back to your question of like what they really thought or what the kind of sequence of thinking is, in part, it had to do with there were learned books and scholars who wrote out this argument about what the Civil War should tell us about party politics. At the same time, I think when politicians, particularly successful politicians occupying peaks of state and national power in this era, when some of them, not all of them, but when some of them articulated this defense of uh, principalist parties, they were articulating the world around them and championing it because not only were they successful in this era, this was an era of, uh, you know, this was the the American century. This was the post-war era of growth and uh, unprecedented global dominance by the United States. And there's a whole school of historical thought, the consensus school in historical scholarship that, you know, embodied a certain degree of complacency about the idea that, yeah, America works and if it's working, we should look at all the institutions and how they work at this moment and see what's good about them. I think that was an impulse that you see in both in scholarly thought, but also sort of vulgarized in the form of politicians saying, hey, things are great. And part of the reason things work are 
for the very kind of norms of bipartisanship, norms of um, reaching across the aisle and forging basically ad hoc uh, legislative bargains issue by issue. That's what we do as politicians in the mid-century, and therefore it's worth celebrating and protecting. So like a lot of things, we tell ourselves a story in America Mm -hmm. that makes us look good. And now I think it is the consensus view or the closest thing that there is to a consensus view on this is that the reason we had this unusual party structure where you had liberals in the Republican Party and conservatives in the Democratic Party is that politics was split by race and in particular by this Southern Democratic Party that acted as a kind of authoritarian ruler of of the American South Mm -hmm. that had very unusual ideological currents within it, but primarily existed in order to protect the Southern way of life against national intrusion. And for a lot of historical reasons, obviously, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican and he invaded the South Uh, for a lot of historical reasons was Democratic, but it wasn't ideologically liberal and it wasn't ideologically Democratic. It was culturally Democratic. And so, you know, we're sitting here having this conversation about how the thing politicians do is they make cross-party compromise and, and they try to embody different conflicts. But what's really happening is that the entire system has made this devil's bargain with the South where the South controls much of the Democratic Party. And in return for working cooperatively with it on things they can agree on, the entire political system more or less leaves Southern racism and and, and racial hierarchy alone. Um, And the filibuster is in this period used basically exclusively against anti-lynching and civil rights laws. Mm -hmm. And and so like there's a story we tell about it. It's really a story that, that they were telling at that time. And then there's the bare knuckle reality of it, which is that what kept the parties mixed was this sort of weird third party that was in alliance with the Democratic Party, but but should basically be understood as this Dixiecrat um, institution. Right. But because it was operating within one of them, it was hard to even see what was happening. I think that's completely right, that the articulation of a celebration of a putative American historical tradition of pragmatic parties and compromise and incrementalism was, in fact, the byproduct of this very contingent set of historical and institutional arrangements, at the center of which was this dissident, increasingly minority, but disproportionately empowered faction within what was typically over this period, the dominant, electorally dominant party in in the country um, that occupied commanding positions of power and certainly veto authority in Congress and for a long time in nominating conventions in the Democratic Party. And the presence of those Southern Democrats had extraordinary kind of ripple effects on how institutions worked and what the ideological stakes to the extent that they were there, what they did or didn't look like. And so on the one hand, absolutely race is the central story of all of this, but it isn't the case that Southern Democrats, first of all, there was a large variety of of political behavior among Southern Democratic legislators with uh, opposition to civil rights being one kind of common denominator for everybody. But a lot of Southern Democrats were also virulently anti-labor. There was a racial reason for that. They didn't want labor unions coming in and organizing black workers in the South, but that they were also, of course, 
the great defenders of federalism and uh, hostility to the use of national power and the use of the national state to uh, pursue regulation and, and welfare state expansion. So there ends up being a whole kind of ideological component that comes out of the political economy and the racial uh, dynamics of the South, and that ends up shaping everything in the middle of the 20th century. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. So I want to talk about the the counter-argument here because the word polarization now operates in our system as a kind of slur. If you're saying something is polarized, you are saying it is bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're saying it's mean. You're saying it's bitter. There is in this period, and this is what your book tracks, a number of people who emerge to argue for polarized parties, to say that the party system we have is not the party system we should have. And can you outline their argument a bit? When, when, when people are coming up and saying, hey, stop it. Stop it with all this agreement. Stop it with these gigantic tents. Like, let's have a real debate here between the parties. What is their, what is their argument? So, again, there's like a pseudo-scholarly, highfalutin version of this. And then there's arguments articulated by politicians and activists and actors. And they do interact. But you mentioned Franklin Roosevelt. He is a pragmatic politician. So he's making deals where he has to make deals. um, And he kind of changes his degree of partisanship. He's chameleon-like in that way across his 3.1 terms in office. But at one point in the late 1930s, as the conservative coalition emerges in Congress of Southern Democrats working with Republicans to start to put the brakes on New Deal legislation, he gets extremely frustrated. And at the same time, basically, that he has been engaging in an effort to undo the obstruction of the judiciary in the Supreme Court, he starts saying explicitly in his fireside chats, et cetera, we ought to have a party that stands for the liberal principles that are in the 1936 Democratic platform. We've got a bunch of Democrats in Congress who don't stand for those principles and those policies, and that's bad. And so famously in 1930, summer of 1938, he goes on what's called his purge campaign to actually endorse and campaign for primary challengers to a bunch of sitting mainly Southern, though not all Southern, uh, conservative Democrats in both the House and the Senate. And it doesn't work at all. It's a huge flop. But that's the articulation there of just on a sort of substantive grounds, the United States elected Franklin Roosevelt and huge majorities on his coattails to pursue a New Deal agenda. They reelected him in 1936 uh, in a much bigger landslide. And the pursuit of cohesive, coherent, and ambitious national policy is obstructed by a system in which minority factions can get together with each other and block and hinder policy. This gets translated a decade later into political scientists reviving a progressive era doctrine called uh, responsible party government that kind of strips away the ideological and legislative agenda that was motivating a lot of New Deal liberals in this direction and makes a small d democratic case for 
the problem with parties that engage in rampant bipartisanship in power and that don't stand for anything clear in terms of policy is that it robs voters of any meaningful choice in elections between different directions that uh, national policy can go in. And then it robs voters of the ability to, to know who to hold collectively accountable for policy outcomes. If there's no collective entity like a party that can say, hey, this was our program. We are implementing it. If you like it, reelect us. If you don't like it, you can vote for the other guys. Muddying the waters to the extent that the emergence of the conservative coalition and, and this kind of bipartisanship in the mid-century had done ended up not only obstructing kind of liberal policy aims from a lot of these people's perspectives, but the argument was that it was undemocratic. So I was reading these parts of your book. And the thing that I noticed was that I am sure that if I had been there, I would have been on the side of the polarizers. Absolutely. That what they are saying makes so much more sense. Like if you're going to have a party system, shouldn't it organize disagreement? You're getting at this in your, your answer. But to me, the idea when we have nationalized political institutions like the Senate or the presidency, that you have Democrats in Alabama voting for a conservative Democrat and Democrats in Massachusetts voting for a liberal Democrat. And that then the kind of party leadership they're getting in the Senate if they win the majority is not even related to what they were promised mm -hmm. in either direction potentially. That doesn't make sense. It's a system that doesn't make sense. And so I'm a wonkish guy and I like things to make sense. I like them to be sorted and ordered and for me to explain how the whole thing works. Right. And, and I have a real appeal towards systems that are clear. But the problem I think that we've run into is that our underlying political system is very complex and in some ways doesn't make as much sense as we like to pretend it does. Uh, this is a, a point that Juan Linz has made and, and our friend Matt Iglesias has made many times. But mm -hmm. when America invades other countries, we don't give them our political system. Right. <laughs> we give them one that makes more sense, like a parliamentary system. And so one of the things that feels like it's happened, and this goes to your point about constitutional fit, is that a polarized party system makes a lot more sense for how politics works. It's how party systems tend to evolve in every country in which they exist. But that our political system, our constitutional system is not built for that. It was not designed to have parties within it. Certainly, it's not designed to have ideologically sorted parties within it. And so we have now gotten caught in this place where, yeah, there's nothing wrong with parties disagreeing except for the fact that our system isn't built to have parties disagreeing. And when it does have it, it paralyzes and it doesn't have a good way to resolve disputes and it creates all kinds of hardball that people feel is illegitimate like Mitch McConnell blocking Merrick Garland even though you know he, he had the power to do that, right? He wasn't playing with something that he did he couldn't do. Right. It wasn't a coup. I'm curious how you think about that, how you think about the question of, yeah, sure, this might have made sense but it didn't fit our underlying constitutional structure and that maybe that's the real problem. One thing I played around with and have been interested in seeing the response from people who've read the book who might not know me or know that I was always cheering on your and Matt Iglesias and others' writings about getting rid of the filibuster and calling for more parliamentary style institutions. I think people can read the book and be filled with a sense of nostalgia. It's a story of, you know, being careful what you wish for or something like that. But I, to be clear and to lay my cards on the table, 
I agree with the polarizers. I definitely would have agreed with them in uh, the 1950s. But even to this day, I think the costs and the burdens that came with the circumstances that produced the bipartisanship of the middle of the 20th century are severe and real. And I think political parties, A, control of the state to do actual things, uh, that is to say to make policy, is the central point of politics. And parties should be entities that mobilize people to uh, do things clearly and uh, deliberately. Which is all to say, though, that uh, there's a sense of tragedy to the book and to the experience of the last several decades in which we have come to have much more ideologically defined parties and distinct party agendas, but the ill fit of those parties with existing political institutions leads to all the bad things you you mentioned. Let let me interrupt here for one second, because one thing I want to do is I don't want to shorthand a part that you and I have talked about before, but but when we say there's an ill fit here, the, the thing that we're talking about is that in most systems, the party that has a majority can govern. Right. It's not perfect, right? Sometimes you have coalitions that are complex and, and, and obviously governing is hard no matter where you are. But if you're in Great Britain and the prime minister by definition has a majority in the parliament. Right. Like you don't have divided government. It's not a thing you can do. Elections are much more aligned, right? You, you just – you cannot have a system like you did say in 2015 here where the Senate is Republican right. and they have the democratic legitimacy that comes from having won in 2014 and the president is democratic and he has a democratic legitimacy that comes from having won in 2012 and there are repeated disputes between them and there's no actual resolution for that dispute save for either waiting for an election or you know <laughs> the, the system collapses or maybe they breach the debt ceiling, right? That's how you get into these escalatory hostage-taking situations, which we are doing much more of now. Right. And one thing that I often disagree with people on is I think the system is deteriorating more quickly than people realize. I think the escalation in constitutional hardball – I mean – and by the way, Democrats do it too. They changed the filibuster. I think it's in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of them wish they hadn't at this point, but I think they were right to do so. They have their own set of things where they respond and retaliate. But the two sides are escalating their tactics so rapidly that I just don't know how far we are from some kind of breach that that, that really begins to tear it apart. But the way in which it doesn't fit is that we have a system that basically needs an unusual level of consensus and cross-party compromise to function. But we now have a political culture and political parties where that consensus and compromise is becoming almost suicidal or impossible. And so when you have parties that can't compromise but a system that can't work without compromise, what you have is a system that doesn't work. That's not how other countries are but it is how we are. And it worked for us because we used to have parties that could compromise, but now we don't. And to my knowledge, nobody has ever proposed an answer for this that makes any sense. Well, I, I'm probably going to disappoint you as well <laughs> for not having my, my own answer. A but solution, it, I should I, say. A I solution. A, a solution, exactly. I would say, just to go back to what these mid-century polarization advocates did get wrong institutionally in their sort of analysis and their prediction was precisely what you said is the first half of the 20th century and most of the 19th century divided government in which one party controls uh, all of Congress or one chamber and the other party controls the White House was a much more rare occurrence. It's 
a story of the post-war era into the 21st century in which very frequently you get periods of divided government. We have this system of fixed elections. So you're just kind of stuck for several years when that happens. And uh, so the advocates of responsible parties who articulated this in a big American Political Science Association report in 1950, they just assumed that what you would get is more parliamentary style parties and they would have unified control of government when uh, election time came around. And then you could see, therefore, a more parliamentary style uh, mode of uh, policymaking and lawmaking. It's absolutely the case that it's the periods when disciplined, ideologically distinct parties occupy co-equal branches of government at the same time that you get gridlock and, and, and crisis. I would say I agree with you that the system is more vulnerable to rapidly breaking down, as you say, um, and we are experiencing that in, in our current era than a lot of people realize. The way I think about that Again, it's not a solution because it's not. Uh, there's not much deliberation going on into in, in terms of thinking of ways to reform the system that people can thoughtfully think about makes sense. But if what you have is a conflict between the way our parties work and the way our political institutions work, a lot of the discussion out there about polarization and partisanship and what's wrong with the system focuses on ways to try and make the parties different or, or possibly like roll back the changes uh, and put the genie back in the bottle and get parties to act like they acted uh, 50 years ago. Part of what I think the thrust of my book hopefully shows is that that is unlikely to happen. And I think if there's going to be give, if there's going to be change, it's going to happen within our political institutions. Short of a constitutional convention where we just write up a new parliamentary system that's unlikely to happen uh, anytime soon. You know, you can you can look at the experience of congressional reforms that happened during the 1970s that kind of gave us a much more partisan, centralized uh, mode of lawmaking in, in Congress as one example of institutions can give and can change at the behest of parties when circumstances allow them to. And the unwinding of the filibuster which is proceeding now, I think, incrementally, starting with judicial and, and executive nominations, will be another example that, you know, I think the forces of partisanship and polarization is what launched the filibuster into profligate use uh, across the board over the last several decades. But it's also the force that is now finally compelling majority parties to say, this is crazy. We can't get anything done. If we're going to have a supermajority requirement in one of the chambers of Congress, we're going to get rid of it. And I think I think that'll happen. And that will be one example of some of these existing uh, fetters on major a more majoritarian political system breaking down in the, in the face of strong partisanship. Right. There is a way in which things now seem to be following an almost inevitable path. Right. I think in, so in 20 I always forget if it's 2013 or 2015. I think it's 2013 13, Democrats yeah. changed the filibuster. But they left it alone on the Supreme Court. And then Republicans immediately came in and took it off on the Supreme Court too. And I've always wondered if Democrats didn't change it in 2013, but Republicans have changed it on the Supreme Court after Trump anyway. And my guess is absolutely yes because yes. <laughs> there's probably at this point no Supreme Court justice who Trump would nominate given how polarized the parties are that Democrats would not filibuster. Uh, that, that just, I think, wouldn't happen. And so in order to get anybody on, particularly given what happened with Garland, like they, they would have to kill the filibuster. 
And so you just you end up on this on this slide. You you made a super interesting point a minute ago though, which is that the tendency of American politics to feature divided government is pretty recent, um, or at least there have been long periods where that wasn't true. This is something that I wonder about a lot. We have gotten used to the idea that American politics are closely divided. In the past couple of elections, everything is operating, you know, within a pretty narrow margin. But you don't go back very far, right? You only have to go back to Reagan to see these massive landslides that were the norm. Right. Nixon had massive landslides. FDR, Eisenhower, massive, massive landslides. Like you, you have in, in American politics going backwards, much bigger margins for candidates and, and also for parties than you have now. I've never seen a good explanation of why American politics became more closely divided. Have you? Um, no, it's almost it's a kind of artifact of turnout differentials between and then that interacting with party coalitions and stuff. It's weird in some ways to think in a time when party loyalty is getting more and more nationalized and uniform so that people aren't dividing their voting behavior, uh, you still get divided government so frequently, um, typically as a result of adverse midterm elections, et cetera. Whatever parties and the kind of networks around the parties are doing to both hold the line on much more distinct, aggressive ideological agendas and get as close to 50 percent of the population as possible to their side, they're doing it efficiently <laughs> in a way that then means you get these this kind of 50% 50-50 electorate and you know as I'm sure you know Francis Lee has written a lot about the consequences even leaving aside ideological polarization of just the constant potential for winning control of government in the next election has a bunch of effects on how parties behave at the national level that, you know, we're seeing bear out. And the last era that was this competitive at the national level, it would be the Gilded Age. Right. And one of the things about that Frances Lee work, so her work is great and and beyond ideology, and she has a new book out on on congressional division that is really good too, um, whose name I'm forgetting. Insecure Majorities. Insecure Majorities. Uh, but, but the thing that is so interesting to me about that is that when you go back into that period of the 40-year unbroken period of democratic house rule, I think that what people hear when they hear that is different than what happened. Because for a lot of that period, the house was often run by a coalition of conservative Southern Democrats and Republicans. And maybe you could say there's some analogs because occasionally you know, Paul Ryan has to pass a budget with most of his caucus and some Democrats voting for it too. But we don't really have a lot like that. Parties are just stronger. Mm -hmm. And so if you say Republicans hold the Senate or Democrats hold the House, you really mean that. You don't mean, as you might have then, that there's a Democratic leader, but ad hoc ideological cross-party coalitions are now in charge. Right. And it's always struck me as genuinely strange. In the Senate in particular, the weakness of individual senators, their, their total unwillingness to just create ad hoc coalitions that could control everything given how closely divided things are, seems to me to fly in the face of a lot of what we know about human nature and a lot of what we thought we knew about politics. And similarly, 
if you had told me from afar that we were having these big, you know, closely divided majorities, I would say, as somebody who studied a lot of political science, oh, you know, median voter theorem and the two parties are aligning themselves to get to 50 percent plus one. So they're both pretty moderate. But in fact, this period has coincided with a period of the Democratic Party moving quite a bit to the left and the Republican Party moving even farther than that to the right. And so it's gotten more closely matched at a time when it's gotten less moderate and less capable of fostering internal compromise so people can take advantage of that close division of power. It's very fucking weird. It's not <laughs> it's not what theory would have predicted. Oh, that's that's very true. And of course, median voter theorem is a product of economics and, and political science in the 1950s when a discussion of two parties competing for moderate voters and therefore converging at the middle looked in aggregate like what national politics looked like. Even though, as you were just saying, it's not in fact that everybody agreed or that the two parties consisted of um, mainly people who were fuzzy centrists themselves agreeing or working with fuzzy centrists in the other party. It was a whole bunch of some extremely extreme and ideological factions within the parties, but they were just jumbled and overlapping and the parties weren't defining which one goes where. Median voter theory is an easy, I think, whipping boy among uh, political scientists uh, since it so clearly doesn't describe what we're seeing. A lot of that has to do with the kind of insight that the mass electorate, not now even, although some people argue they've gotten more ideological over time uh, given party sorting, but certainly compared to engaged activists and elites, the mass electorate was never particularly ideological, didn't think in ideological terms, certainly didn't think not only with a sense of, I know what my ideology is, and I also know what the positions are of the candidates I might vote for, and I'm going to find who is most proximate to my positions and choose them. That that doesn't describe how people actually vote. And so there's this a huge degree of leeway that engaged actors in the political process, issue-driven activists, movements, interest groups, politicians, there's a lot more leeway for those kinds of coalitions to push an agenda that's what we would describe as like off-median from a mass public opinion. I want to ask you about Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump a product of polarized politics or a reaction to polarized politics? <sighs> Trump, uh, like uh, I'm not the only person who had been working on a book, you know, largely before 2016. And then, you know, I felt like the real victim when Trump got elected because it's just uh, my book <laughs> you know, it required a lot of, of kind of scrambling, I think. If you read my book, it's a good prediction for a 2016 campaign between Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz, right? Like it would predict someone or between Bernie Sanders maybe and Ted Cruz, if you want to say that. But it's a story of parties that have relatively cohesive ideological agendas these days and um, a dynamic that compels more and more kind of extreme positions. Whereas Trump Trump as a candidate uh, was not only kind of capitalizing on being a political outsider and someone clearly outside of Republican politics, but was so openly dismissive of the whole conservative movement, a sort of fusion of 
economic conservatism, small government, as well as kind of social and cultural issues. So he ran on nativism. He towed the line on certain cultural issues, but then he also talked about raising taxes on hedge funders and um, investing in infrastructure and protecting Medicaid, Medicare, and uh, Social Security, et cetera. What I would say Trump is a product of, this gets into more recent work I've been doing with uh, Daniel Schlossman at, at Johns Hopkins. You know, he identified a huge gap between Republican elites and what their policy agenda is and what issues Republican elites care about and rank and file Republican voters. And he identified that gap. He gave Republican voters exactly the positions they wanted rhetorically during the election. And so in in, in that sense, he sort of bucked a lot of the trends we had seen in increasingly polarizing politics. Trump in office Generally speaking, the policy agenda you see coming out of Congress, certainly what you're seeing, the people that are going to the Supreme Court now, doesn't look much different from what a Ted Cruz or or, or a Jeb Bush administration would have been. Um, I think the power at the elite level of the conservative coalition and donor networks and uh, the Republican establishment and their agenda, particularly on economics, Trump has been more than happy to just give away the store to them, give the keys uh, of legislative power to um, Paul Ryan and et cetera. To me, one of the things there, um, your book is about polarization, both in theory and practice among party elites. And, And I think this speaks to a problem we have when we talk about polarization just in general, which is that we speak about it in the singular. There is political polarization among parties, among party elites, among voters, among the public. There is polarization that is about ideology, that is about identity. Mm -hmm. There is polarization that is positive. There is polarization that is negative. Um, Negative partisanship, I think, does more actually to explain Donald Trump than partisanship Mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. If you want to know how the Republican Party consolidated, the answer actually isn't Donald Trump, it's Hillary Clinton. And and I think we have trouble with this because we've not given these things really different terms. I think of Donald Trump as very much a product of polarization, but not of ideological polarization. I think of him as a product of – and I know these ideas bleed into each other, but the sorting of different groups and group identity and right. the polarization we have moved apart from each other in who we are. And so you know, we look across the divide and, and see more difference. And that can create a kind of polarization too. And it always strikes me as interesting what Donald Trump has managed to do if you just step back from the whole thing, is his actual tenure in office has managed to combine the thing that it turned out Republican Party voters felt most strongly about with the thing that Republican Party elites felt very strongly about. So Republican Party voters felt very strongly about group identity, about nationalism, right. you know, about a collection of identities that have to do with racial and demographic and nationalistic change. Mm-hmm. And he's really held that. I mean, Trump on immigration is who he promised to be, more or less. Trump on trade is who he promised to be, more or less. Trump on talking about NFL players kneeling on the field is who he promised to be, more or less. Right. But then if you go to the thing that had been the the project of party elite polarizers, which is low taxes, overturning Roe, appointing judges who might overturn Roe or who, and who are very skeptical about the administrative state, about Obamacare, Trump has been completely on their side. So he seems to me to have identified instinctually or not, like what both groups actually cared about the most. Right. And so has managed to retain a union between the two of them, even while he's doing some things he promised each one he wouldn't do. 
I think that's totally right. I think, you know, there are certain things Trump could have done or people could have responded differently to that would test some of that. I mean, it's worth remembering that he did actually go out of his way during the primary to say unorthodox things about the Republican economic agenda. So to to say, I'm the only one up here who's going to protect Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security, implying he's going to raise taxes on hedge funders. I think it's notable that he felt compelled instinctually to lie about that stuff. That one way of mobilizing the voters he mobilized in part involved needing to perhaps alleviate their fears that he's going to be another kind of Romney-style Republican just in it for rich guys or something. On the flip side, what he revealed was that there's a voter base out there that would respond very well to what you see more cohesively in the populist right parties in Europe that he's always compared to, the Le Pens, et cetera, which really does combine um, racism, anti-immigration politics with a protection of the welfare state for the native population, a kind of big status uh, sort of ethno-nationalism. I think for all the weakness that the Republican Party displayed in being unable to stop Trump in the first place or being ineffectual in attempting to stop him in the first place and then flipping completely once he secured the nomination, the real test of just how weak the Republican Party as an establishment is, the test would have been if he was serious about pursuing a tax agenda that was not Paul Ryan's tax agenda. And I genuinely think you would have seen an actual <laughs> Republican Party either trying to prevent him from getting the nomination or a complete and open revolt now. But he's managed to uh, keep kind of keep both sides happy in just the way you described it. How do you see the Democratic Party right now? So I think reading your book, the story you're telling the Democratic Party is a party becoming more orthodoxly liberal, a party that has moved to the left and, and moved into a, a narrow band on the left. I also think that if you listen to a lot of the stories that are told about the Democratic Party in this period, people feel that there was a loss of this Franklin Roosevelt, New Deal fighting Democratic Party. It became this more diffuse, corporatist, neoliberal thing and that now there's this war for the party's soul. I remember being in a different version of this a few years back. I always think about the – I don't know if you remember this. But the Washington Monthly had me interview Charlie Peters because it felt that I was an unfair critic of neoliberals. And so yeah. I wanted me to, to interview <laughs> um, like the, the founder of sort of Democratic Party neoliberalism. Right. But now I'm, I'm held up as a sort of example of neoliberalism of that, 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 that left people don't like. Uh, so I felt like I've had an unusual vantage point on this. But do you think the Democratic Party has moved left? Is what it's done something more complicated than that? Is it on the same path as the Republican Party and just a couple years behind or just like doing something completely different. I'm curious how you tell their story and whether or not you think the sort of conventional wisdom about Democrats is off. Right. Um, I emphasize, given the history I'm telling and the, the period I start out with, the significance. It's more of a compositional story or it's in large part a compositional story rather than a story of new ideas, a new kind of ideological zeal, et cetera. But it is significant that the center-left party in the United States now doesn't have a reactionary, racist, and powerful 
faction within it. And that happened over the course of these decades that at the same time, people point to other developments that now people like to call neoliberalism. They were the Atari Democrats in the 1970s and 80s, the Gary Hartz, et cetera, and, and Charlie Peters that turned into the DLC and the new Democrats that Bill Clinton was championed. But it's important to keep in mind the party in the aggregate has shed this huge dissident ideological component from the party that had huge consequences for how the party itself behaved, not just how those members behaved. And so I think a lot of the invidious comparisons people on the left like to make about the Democratic Party is to compare some particular Democrat who's acting in a ineffectual or sellouty manner at the moment to a liberal lion from 70 years ago rather than sort of take in the party as a whole. I then think there are real asymmetries in terms of the social and group basis of the two parties. It has been a burden for the center-left party in the United States, like elsewhere, but especially in the United States, that organized labor has declined in society and in the particularly the private sector since the 1950s um, and accelerating more recently. At the same time, given our campaign finance structure, elections have gotten more expensive. Um, the party depends on money. And so you have, in a way that you do not have on the Republican side, cross pressures between the need to finance the party and finance campaigns with a commitment to putatively egalitarian sort of economic agendas and the decline of labor means a relative at the margin decline of a huge counterweight to that. That is an issue that remains huge and was huge all over the course of the second half of the 20th century. My take is just that that is such a huge issue. It's striking to me how much commitment <laughs> to um, at least certainly much more um, egalitarian economic and welfare state agenda the Democratic Party retains vis-a-vis -vis the Republican Party. And that's the work in part of a lot of the actors I catalog from the kind of 1970s onward of people who were coming out of 1960s social cultural movements, working with progressive elements of the labor movement to try and sort of sustain a labor-liberal coalition at the base of the party and to make sure that the party's agenda both on economics and on cultural and social issues remained liberal. I think through some very adverse headwinds uh, over the last several decades, uh, they've managed to do that. And certainly in the 21st century, it's been a story of a much less complicated story, frankly, of a party that is consistently becoming more activist and progressive on economic and social issues together. What that means is constantly you get complaints about Democratic politicians being sellouts and uh, feckless and corporatists, et cetera. But, but that's a sign of a lot of vigorous people engaging in factional brawling in the party, complaining about their factional antagonism. You get – that's basically the entire discourse among Republicans. Tea Party types are constantly complaining about Republican rhinos, but that doesn't mean that the Republican Party hasn't in fact moved vigorously to the right. I like that idea that that kind of discussion is actually a signal of a party moving to the right because when you don't have that kind of discussion, that means the 
sort of insurgents are not strong enough to be noticed. Right. Right. That they're just being ignored. I mean, I think of when we were at the prospect, and the prospect was part of this somewhat complex liberal policy journal opinion magazine um, ecosystem that included the Washington Monthly and The Nation and, and The New Republic. Right. And we were there at the time when the big fight was between the, the DLC side and I, I think what you'd call the labor liberals. Mm-hmm. And now um, the DLC side of the party is basically gone, right? It, it doesn't exist. I mean, the, the people who now seem sort of centristy and, and solidity would have been on the left of that debate. Right. And now you have a um, move away from the liberals of that era towards this idea of, you know, Sanders-esque democratic socialism. And you see different people doing it in different ways, but not just where the center of the party is, but where the view of what it takes to get elected is has really changed quite a bit. And it seems to me that it's speeding up, not slowing down. Obama, I always think of as a more interesting figure here than he's usually given credit for, because I think if you listened to him during his rise, he was really walking a line between Clintonism and a critique of Clintonism. Right. And in office, he managed to govern a pretty similar party using many of the same people while moving it quite substantially to the left. Now, not as far to the left as as many people would have liked to see him move it, but there was both a lot less rhetorical and policy compromise because he did not believe politically and probably substantively too, but but politically, that that compromise was necessary for governing the country. I don't think people always recognize how much further to the left Obama was than Bill Clinton, both in his substantive and in his approach to politics. And I think now Obama is seen by a lot of young Democrats in the party, by the Sanders wing, as like Clinton was by Obama. And I just think we're going to make another jump. Yeah. I mean, this could all just be you and I are just old (laughs) and liberal squishes and it's a generational thing. But uh, that's exactly my perspective on it. I I am philosophical, perhaps because I'm just a professor and not the, I don't bear the brunt of- You've always been philosophical. Well, sure, but uh, but uh, you're kind of chin strokey, and you 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 have big thoughts on things. I don't I don't have people hectoring me on Twitter, is what <laughs> I mean, and, and holding me up as as the poster boy for kind of neoliberal technocracy or something. But I do encourage, and you know, as a citizen rather than a scholar, I'm I'm encouraged and optimistic by the scrappy, aggressive, quite hard edged left-wing activism that we've seen. Um, Certainly, I love seeing it manifest in things like primary campaigns and big battles within the Democratic Party rather than in a kind of anti-politics like you saw with a lot of the Occupy Wall Street or, you know, quixotic third-party efforts. But I do think just the historical record shows, just as you said, that in part because the Republican Party had removed themselves as plausible partners in legislative compromises that Obama, to probably his discredit, was constantly tempted into thinking he could forge big, giant, bipartisan grand compromises. But because generally the writing was on the wall on the other side, this is part of the dynamic of polarization, it meant that he was going to try and pursue an ambitious agenda and do it with essentially only Democratic votes. And that meant some compromises didn't need to be made across the aisle that would have happened otherwise. You know, Obama is this complicated figure. And he also, because he had like legal academic 
background. I think he was more of an intellectual than you usually see among politicians. And that was- Well, well we fixed that. <laughs> Absolutely, right. But there's good As things- As a country, we, we, we got done with that <laughs> real quick. Yes, the pendulum swung hard. Um, you know, one thing, he clearly had come to think- Uh, as a constitutional scholar and a reader of this, that like he believed the conventional wisdom of liberals having come historically depend too much on the courts, say, you know. And this would be an example of him not, I think, playing the cards as hard as he could have. His sort of slow walking of and lack of attention to uh, the judiciary, to the efficiency of judicial nominations and getting them through when he could, I think was a product of his own intellectual thoughts about how politics should work. Uh, but it was an example of him actually not pushing the institutions to the hilt um, in a way that a lot of his critics to the left took him to task for. I think I think that's pretty much right. So speaking of thoughtful intellectuals and the books they read, the question I always used to close out the podcast is what are three books you've read that either for this project or just because that you would recommend to this audience that have changed your mind or influenced your thinking that, that you think others should read? Okay. So I'm, I want to be practical. I want these to be books that people could actually go out and buy and, and would enjoy reading. A very important direct influence on my approach to The Polarizers was a book that I was assigned to review at The Prospect back in like 2004 by Julian Zelizer, the historian. Um, He's written a bunch of great works of political history, but he wrote a book about congressional reform called On Capitol Hill. And there's a lot of good political science on congressional reform, but his is a story that has real actors and um, a kind of narrative of institutions changing at the behest of coalitions of reformers and seizing moments of opportunity historically to pursue major change. And the congressional reform he talks about is, A, the ending of a committee system that was defined by strict seniority and that therefore empowered uh, disproportionately older conservative Southern Democrats into a system in which congressional control is much more centralized in party leaders. It was also this era of congressional reform that saw the last major change in the filibuster rule, lowering the threshold from 67 to 60 votes for filibusters. And, you know, part of what was influential for me was that this is a story of national legislative institutions becoming much more partisan and ultimately more polarized by partisanship. And it was done at the behest of liberal Democrats. Um, It was a story in which liberals who ended up lamenting some of this um, in the Bush and now Trump eras, having reasons to want to make politics in the United States more partisan. So on Capitol Hill by Julian Zelizer, I think another good sort of more narrowly focused but really rich historical work that I got a lot out of is a, a book by Jennifer Delton at Skidmore called Making Minnesota Liberal. And it says, in some ways, it's as focused a book as that title implies. It's about Hubert Humphrey, his circle of political activists and and political scientists in Minnesota in the 1940s, and their project of fusing the Democratic Party in the state with the Farmer Labor Party, a third party, into the DFL, which is what the Democratic Party in Minnesota is to this day. It's a study of that. It's also a study of Cold War liberalism, of how civil rights for white liberals in the North came to be such a kind of 
keystone of post-war politics. Um, and it's just really well rendered and a book that's worth checking out. Finally, in a kind of more broad intellectual influential sense, Theda Scotchpool, who I know you know her work quite well. She's a kind of titan of political science and sociology. Um, she's written a whole bunch of big giant books, but I think the most bang for your buck and the one I teach all the time is just a book called Social Policy in the United States, which came out in the early 90s. And it's just a collection of all the articles she wrote and book chapters she wrote over the course of the 80s and early 90s about the welfare state and about how American social policy and healthcare, pensions, stuff like that came to look the way it did, why it looks differently, why it developed differently than comparable Western democracies. And it's, it, you know, I read it in college for the first time and it was just one of those books that I read it and I thought, this is how to look at the world and make sense of it. So this kind of approach that takes history and institutions and movements and their interactions kind of seriously as the, as the engine of what makes the world tick is I can't recommend it enough. Sam Rosenfeld, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Sam Rosenfeld for being on the show, to Griffin Tanner for engineering, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, for producing. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.